0: It's quite a full p- piece of uh scripture isn't it i think i actually like the way it reads in, in 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 the new american standard to me it's a little bit easier to kind of comprehend uh what paul is saying here but but i want to back up in into um, verse 10 it says for while we were enemies we were reconciled to god through the death of his son much more having been reconciled, we will be saved by his life. And so there's this this concept of reconciliation that that kind of overshadows or or overly, not overly, but over influences the rest of this chapter. And, and the fact that that, and I talked about this on Wednesday night, but but this this idea of being reconciled, that is, we are put in a new status. Remember, we talked about this on Wednesday night. We were put into a, a new status. We have, been, we have gone from being unrighteous people, which, what, which is what we looked at in Romans chapter 4, and now we are, our status is that of being righteous. So we needed the reconciliation with God uh, because while we were yet sinners, we were... Um, we were not reconciled with God we were the scripture tells us we were at enmity or we were with conflict with god and again, Romans in this particular chapter tells us that God demonstrates his love toward us that while we were yet sinners, what Christ dies for us so this this incredible work of reconciliation that because of the sin of Adam and that 's what the the the, the uh, the, the following verses are talking about because of the sin of Adam, uh, sin and therefore death fell upon the entirety of humanity. And, and really, it's really outlined for us really well in the book of Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. And, and even we're told even earlier that they're, they're, they're told of the tree of the knowledge Of good and evil and if you eat of this fruit that you will die now did they die when they ate of the fruit they didn't die physically but they had a death sentence placed upon them spiritually now there are some who believe that that they did die spiritually as well that their spirit actually died I know I don't I don't think there's really enough given to us in scripture to really make that distinction Nonetheless, they did have a death sentence upon them, spiritually and physically, and yet, what does God immediately do? If you remember the Genesis narrative, because all of a sudden they have sinned, they go hide from God. Why do they hide from God? Because they're naked. So, what does God do? He kills an animal and he covers his his people. That's an act of reconciliation. They are now covered so that they can enter into the presence of God. They are now covered so that they can once again walk with God in the cool of the day. And so God made that provision. We don't know what the time span was between the time they ate of the forbidden fruit until the time God comes walking in the garden in the cool of the day looking for them. I'm a... I think it's probably a safe assumption that it probably wasn't a whole lot of time. But God actually comes down and he walks in the garden in the cool of the day and he's looking for his, he's looking for his creation. He's looking for his people. He's looking for his children. And what are they doing? They're hiding. So he makes a provision to reconcile them. It's an incredible picture of the Lamb of God who would later die for the sins of the world so that you and I might be reconciled. So that when God comes walking in the cool of the day looking for you, you don't have to hide. You don't have to hide. And and so this whole idea of reconciliation is wrapped around and in the concept even in the greek language is wrapped around this this idea of a personal relationship and it is not therefore something that god does completely and entirely by himself not he's not acting unilaterally here in this act of restoration now i I touched on this wednesday night but just to, to kind of repeat this because I think it's an important concept that we really drill down in our heads, that, that if it was not for God, we would not ever be saved. All right, that wouldn't happen. I think that's really clear what we looked at in Re- Romans 3 and in Romans 4. God is always the initiator. Always the initiator. Even when you think you're the initiator, guess what, you're not. According to Scripture, he is. But what is our part in, in, in this act of reconciliation? You said faith, I think. Faith, yes. But faith, and I believe, also acted in the act of surrender. If you will confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And, and so this act of faith, but it's also this confession of him as Lord, which I think it, 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 it refers to us submitting ourselves to him, but also I think it's a, it's a confession of his deity. And that part of the transaction is that we have, are going to give our lives to Jesus, and then because of that, we have made a decision to follow him. And so... Back in Romans 5, if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, how much more so having been reconciled, okay, the transaction has been completed, the reconciliation has happened, we will be saved by his life. We will be saved by his life. That's the phrase I really want to grab a hold of this morning. Because in the margin that, that, I, that I read in, in, actually it's not in my, my particular Bible, but I read in another Bible, in the margin of the, of the New American Standard, that word by, we are saved by his life, it could also be translated saved in his life. Because it is, it is the uh, Greek preposition in which if you want to spell it in English, it's E-N. And it is used by Paul. The phrase being in Christ is used by Paul about 165 times in his letters. That's a lot. Now, remember when we studied the book of Ephesians and Ephesians, particularly in Ephesians chapter 1 and in chapter 2, we saw that phrase over and over and over again, did we not? This idea of being in Christ. This idea of, of um, not just having a relationship with God by him, or sometimes this Greek word en can be translated through him, okay, And, and those, those two words, by and through, they really depict this idea of an association. Almost like a, a, a partnership is probably not the best way to describe it, but kind of a side-by-side relationship between two parties. You, you, and we have this relationship with God through Jesus Christ and, and him being our mediator. And that's true. However, I, I think that we fail to recognize at times that the, the fact that Jesus Christ is our mediator, we have one mediator between God and man, and that is the man of Christ Jesus, that it is more than just being, having a relationship with God through Christ. It is more than just having a relationship with God by Jesus, in other words, he becomes the vehicle or the means. But it is having a relationship with God in Christ, and this word "in" describes not just the side-by-side partnership, but more. Uh, Going into greater detail, I'm say more correctly, but correctly, um, this word and, in, in the English, or "n" in the Greek, describes this idea of a union. It describes this idea of a union with Christ. And that's part of why I, I just felt, uh, and, and we'll probably look at it again, but that's part of why I, I really felt, led to to go into this uh, passage right before we had communion in Philippians chapter 3, being found in him. You're not found through him. You're not found by him. Your identity is located. That's what being found means, right? Your identity, who you are, is located in Christ through this incredible mystical union. Which is really spoken about in a number, a number of different ways in the New Testament. And why it is hard to describe, and I think why it is that at times we as Christians probably neglect this concept, is because it is often described in an allegorical form, because to really describe something that, that really is a mystery, that is something that, that does go beyond our understanding. We really need the visual, the imagery of an allegory to help us understand exactly what's going on. And And what I've found about any kind of imagery or allegory is is, is it comes close, but it doesn't fully identify it, right? And particularly with the way that... Well, with the way that I teach, often with the way that uh, and it, that you guys process the scriptures, often is that you're you're looking for the framework, right? You're looking for the framework, right? Uh, the Wednesday night late night questions, right? You're looking for the framework, and okay, well, how does this all really, uh, how does this all really fit ontologically, or what is the real truth about this? When when I talk about my relationship with Christ, how do I fully identify it? And what what I've come to really realize is that my union with Jesus Christ goes beyond my ability to describe to you what that is really all about. We know that Jesus dwells in us by or through or in the agency, if I can use that word, of the third person of the Trinity, God the Holy Spirit. And, 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 and I, I don't think that's metaphoric. I don't think that's an allegory. I think that's an actual, literal, spiritual reality. That the Spirit of God dwells in your physical being. Now I'm going to get real almost I'm going to well, we'll see how you react. How's that? Do you realize that's incarnational? Do you realize that? That the spirit of Christ, God in the flesh, who walked in the flesh and died for our sins in the flesh, the spirit of God now dwells in you. That's a reality that isn't a, a, some kind of a ethereal concept that we just try to grab at, grab at but, but it is, it's an actual truth. Does that help? It's hard to describe, though, isn't it? All right. Thank you. All right. You're with me. Okay. All right. Thinking about that, giving some meditative thought to that idea, excuse me, that truth, will do one of two things to you. It either puts you in the, oh no, right? Or hopefully you recognize it as an invitation to further explore the person of Jesus Christ and your relationship with him. Because it's in him. Because we have this union with Christ. Or as Peter talked about in his first letter, this idea of having the divine nature. Now, we will never be as God, okay? I don't believe that. God is so much farther and so much beyond us, and to be honest with you, that gives me an incredible amount of comfort. But we do have that divine nature. And Jesus spoke about these truths, or this truth, in a number of places. But I'm just going to pull a few of them this morning, show you a few verses, and then let you just go and really think on this even more. The book of John, chapter 15. The book of John, chapter 15. Jesus is speaking here. I'll, I'll go to the New King James on this one. I'm going to read some of it to you, and I'm, I'm going to have a few comments. But I'm not going to turn over every stone here for you. Jesus is speaking here in verse 1 of chapter 15 of the Gospel of John. He says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away or lifts up, that could be translated. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. That's, that's the verse I want to kind of land on. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine neither can you unless you abide in me. Verse 5, I am the vine and you are the branches, and he who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. We'll leave it at that. We'll stop there, that is. And Jesus is using this analogy of a vine, a grapevine. And, and telling us that he is that vine. And we are the branches of the vine. Now, when I look at a vine, it, now, I used to live in what they called down there. They call it down there Northern California. It's actually, unless you live in Redding, then they call that Central California. But they're confused down there. But anyway, um, but I used to live in, out not too far from wine country, um, Napa Valley area. And when we would go through the vineyards, when I would look and I would look at a plant, I would see the vine. I would see the entire vine, which included what? The branches. I didn't distinguish between the two. Oh, look at the vines here. You know, Look at the grapevines. Um, Jesus describes himself as the vine, which would include what? The branch. But then Jesus differentiates in this passage and he tells us we are what? We are the branch, which is a part of what? The vine. And the the branch cannot bear fruit on its own. It has to be attached to the vine. And we do so, the bearing fruit, the bearing of the spiritual fruit in our lives is done as we abide in Christ. As we recognize the union relationship that we already have, according to the book of Romans chapter five, as we recognize that relationship of the union that we have, and we stay connected then we're able to bear fruit in our branch because this whole idea of abiding really talks about making a having a sense of making a home a dwelling place uh, To me, that's interesting that that, that Jesus used this particular analogy. One, he also identifies himself as the branch, us. But then he tells us that we are to abide in him, but also in verse 4, what else is going on there? We are to abide in him and what? I in you. He in us, I should say. In other words, he's saying, I'm already abiding in you. I've already made myself at home in you, with you. He's using this analogy to talk about a spiritual reality, to talk about a spiritual truth. Therefore, if Jesus is abiding in you, you should also abide in him. Have you truly made a home? And I think, I think sometimes this comes and goes in our, in, our, in our life, even in our week. But have you truly made yourself at home and abiding in him? And do you see yourself as a person who abides in Christ, uh, uh, living out this incredible union? And Jesus is using this incredible example to teach us. I've got another one for you. Matthew 26. This is where I'm, I know I'm going to get in trouble on this one. Well, maybe not. Matthew 26. Right around verse 26. We just did it. It's talking about communion. It's talking about in remembrance. It's also talking about the idea of giving thanks. In Matthew 26, verse 26, they are having that last Passover meal just before they go into the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus has his final His final prayer with the Father, or at least before the cross. He prays on the cross as well, of course. It says, And as they were eating, Jesus took bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to his disciples, and he said, Take, eat, this is my body. Verse 27, then he took the cup and he gave thanks and he gave it to them saying, drink from it all of you for this is my blood of the new covenant which is shed for the many for the remissions of sins. This idea of internalizing the person of Jesus Christ His body, his blood. Now, i got to say something real quick. I do not believe that the bread becomes the actual body. I do not believe that the cup or the juice or the wine, whatever you use to, to drink, becomes the actual blood. But they are physical representations of his blood, of his body, and when we are partaking of those elements, in a spiritual sense, we are receiving the life body, we are receiving the life blood of Jesus into our physical bodies. And so I think there is a whole lot more going on here in communion than we often really understand, to be honest with you. The more I think about communion, I think the less I really Really get it? Is it a memorial? Yes, the Bible says it is. But it is it is it a partaking of the person of Jesus Christ? Yeah, I think it is. I think it is. And and as some churches in uh, will describe, they refer to it as a means of grace, which I think it is. Now I will also say, and I've shared this some of this with you before, I I think I, think I want to say the moment my feet hit the ground each morning, but it's even before that, I am receiving, you are receiving. We are receiving the grace of God 24/7, okay? But I, I also believe that there are times where the Lord calls us to set aside or to place a particular focus. And a particular attention and a particular awareness toward something a little bit deeper. And I think that's part of what communion is all about. Does that make sense to you? All? I mean, I've, I, I've, I've sat up here for over 18 years and I see the looks on people's faces when I lead in communion. And I, I realize that often it is that God is doing something very deep and very personal and very nondescript and yet very important in the life of the believers as we come to the table and partake of his body and drink of his blood. And when we do it and we come to the table with that attitude of receiving and an attitude of remembering and an attitude of giving thanks. There's all kinds of things, I think, that happen to us spiritually that we, some, some of us, I don't think, some of it, I don't think we're even totally aware of. But I'll, I, I know about you, but it feeds me. It feeds me spiritually when I take of the bread and drink of the cup. And, and I recognize that, 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 that I'm more than just Jesus' little buddy. I can use that term. We are more than just just people who God loves although yes God loves us very dearly but but there's this this incorporation that that the Lord Jesus Christ has done with each of us and drawn us into himself. And in part of that walk and that relationship with him he's saying, "Hey, I want you to set aside a time so that you often as you eat this bread and drink this cup you remember my death until I return and that's why it's also to me a a, a very holy and a very uh, a very special moment I think as a church body it's probably one of the most special things that we do together and the fact that we do it often hopefully does not minimize it to you and I and I, I remember talking with a woman one time, and I'm telling her I really would like to do it every Sunday. Yeah, and she says, Yeah. Well, if we do that, it would just be too common. Well, if that's the case, then shame on you. Because we are remembering the body broken, we are remembering the blood that shed, we are remembering this incredible sacrifice whereby Jesus laid down His life for our sins. He who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might obtain the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. That's what we are remembering. This incredible, incredible, incredible act of redemption that the Lord Jesus Christ has done for each of us—we partake of who He is. Yes, I believe we use physical elements, and the partaking is actually on a, phys- a spirit, excuse me, a spiritual level. But I think often it is that God calls us into doing physical things that we might really apprehend them spiritually. I think that's what baptism's all about. Baptism doesn't save you. But we are buried with him in baptism. That's that's another form. We are buried with him in baptism. We are raised to walk in newness of life. That's part of why I believe in believers' baptism. It's is, it is that outward expression of what has happened inwardly as we are raised to walk in newness of life. We now have a new change of status from unrighteous to righteous, and we have been reconciled, and now we are find ourselves in him you see how this all ties together so beautifully one more and i'll be done probably probably could end right there but one more real real quick our relationship in christ is the foundation that we build upon matthew 7 matthew 7 around verse 24 Okay, so on the Sermon on the Mount, to really understand the full weight of what he says in Matthew 7, 24, we have to go back to Matthew 5, verse 1. We won't do that this morning, okay? But he says, therefore, in other words, what I have just told you, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them will be likened him to a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rains descended and the floods came and the wind blew and beat on the house and it did not fall for it was founded on the rock. The rock over and over and over again in scripture is a symbol of whom? Of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he's saying build on me. Establish on me. Connect with me. Build your house on me. Anchor yourself, everything of who you are and what you do, anchor that on me. Because the winds will howl, the rain will come, the floods will rise, and if you are anchored to him... that which you have built will stand because you find yourself in this incredible union with our Lord Jesus Christ. Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. There's union right there. I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. There's that phrase again, in Or N in the Greek. And the life which I now live in the flesh. Because are we all living our lives in the flesh right now? Yes we are. Or else we're not here. Okay. The life we now live in the flesh. By faith. I live by faith in the son of God. Who loved me. And gave himself up. For me. Paul. Paul. In that verse codifies what it means to live a life in union with Christ.